Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm pleased to be joined again this week on the podcast by Peter Stanford to talk about his new book, If These Stones Could Talk, the history of Christianity in Britain and Ireland through 20 buildings. It's published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available at the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of £16. Peter, welcome back to the Church Times podcast. It's very nice to be here again. Thank you for asking me back. Now, there are, there are many books which explore the sort of architectural and aesthetic qualities of church buildings, but um, your book's trying to do something a bit different, isn't it? And tell us a deeper historical story about the building's significance and, and the, the story of Christianity in, in the British Isles. Yes, it's trying to, I suppose it's, it, it is, it's certainly doing that. I know uh, linear history is um, terribly unpopular now. Uh, when my children were at school, every few weeks they'd come home and they're doing the Tudors again, and they never did any of the other bits in between. Um, but uh, yeah, so, um, so in a very, um, uh, I suppose people might think it's a slightly, it's old fashioned and it may be slightly OCD way. I wanted to organize the history of Christianity in my own mind. And this is tragic because I did a history degree, but I kind of think, I came from a very uh, inward looking uh, home and I was so excited to be at university. I didn't really do much of my history degree, um, although there were vague bells ringing in the back of my mind. But I wanted to organise the history of Christianity in my head in the right order. And I suppose one of the things I've been walking around churches for ages, one of the things I always got confused about was the Anglo-Saxon Golden Age, Anglo-Saxon still around when William the Conqueror comes. So why did we need William the Conqueror? Vikings, Vikings coming, Canterbury Cathedral burnt down when just after William the Conqueror. All, I just couldn't get it right in my mind. And so there was a sense in which I wanted to get it all in order. And I suppose the other thing I wanted to get in order was how the relationships worked between um, Britain the different parts of the British Isles. So you have to be really careful with your words here. So just a, 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 a forewarner to everyone, if you're Irish, Scottish or Welsh, and I inadvertently say the word English, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm a bit Irish, um, but the, the, you know, we, we, we struggle with these words now. Um, but to work out the history of how that happened. So rather than narrowly doing it in England or England and Wales, because poor old Wales always gets chucked in with England, um, Scotland obviously has made a big case for its difference and Ireland is a completely other place, but they, they share a history, organising it in that way as well. So the history bit was quite straightforward in that way. So in a way I'm telling history in a rather Neil McGregor way through, through buildings or through objects or whatever, so I didn't invent that. There is, as you say, the joy of the architecture and, and all of those things. And so <laughs> I will pay my debt now to Simon Jenkins, who's written his thousand best churches and his thousand best everything, as far as I can see. Um, this is just one per century, although there were some of the centuries it was so hard to choose the ones that I want, the ones that I wanted, that I ended up with a little list at the end of each chapter saying you could also also with a story to tell. And, I, and my editor made me limit myself to three there because some of them I was thinking, oh, I could put 10 in there. But anyway, so um, but there are 20 principal destinations. So it's telling those things. What I hope it is also telling, and obviously readers must judge this, is a history of people. Um, it isn't just a history of popes and bishops and, um, and kings and princes and generals and political systems. Um, it is about what people, how people worshipped and what they wanted in their church and what they wanted not taken from their churches. And the most fantastic story in the book along those lines is my 12th century church, which is a very beautiful uh, Norman church in the Welsh borders called St. Mel Mel Melangeth. 
I keep saying Melangath. I used to say Melangath. Anyway, Melangath is the right way. Uh, Welsh speakers listening, just shout at shout at the podcast and say you've got it wrong. I did grow up on the Wirral, which is almost in Wales, uh, but my Welsh isn't very good. Anyway, so she was a seventh-century Irish princess. A sort of anchorite who lived in in um, this place in the Berwyn Mountains called Pennant, where well, it's now called Pennant Melangeth after her. Twelfth century church. Um, her remains had been found there. It was a place of healing. So pre-Reformation, they built a shrine as they would. So shrine looking a bit like a kind of scale model of a of a, of a great tall cathedral. Looks like it's got a tent on the top slightly, and uh, people flocked there. Orders came after the Reformation from London saying, so none of this Catholic nonsense in our churches, take that sort of superstitious saints nonsense away, get rid of it. The people in that church didn't want to get rid of it, but equally didn't want to get into trouble. So they dismantled it piece by piece and they hid it in the north wall of the church, literally put it in, plastered over it, a couple of bits in the lich gate as well. And no one remembered till the uh, 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 19th century, till the Victorian vicar there sort of sensed that it was there, but it wasn't until the late 1980s. And some Church Times readers may even know this couple, Paul and Evelyn Davis. Paul was the vicar there, Evelyn later became a vicar. And when I met her when she was the vicar of Aberdaran, uh, the R.S. Thomas Church. Um, she's now sadly dead. And they reassembled it. And architectural historians tell us it is the finest Romanesque shrine in Northern Europe. It is there on the altar. So there's your architecture, there's your history, but it's also about, about people's connection with different things, why people worshiped, how they worshiped, what that told us outside. And I suppose the final thing, sorry, very long answer, but the final thing the book is about, it's about us and our past. It's about, you know, we, we talk a lot about being a secular society, um, but a lot of the ways in which we react to the world, our laws, our customs, our folklore, our culture, our literature, our painting is rooted in a Christian heritage. And I think when you go and stand in these churches, whatever your views, whether you are religious or not, whether you're a violent atheist or not, when you stand there, particularly in some of the very old churches, you are standing where people have stood for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And sometimes the classic one in that sense in the book is St. Martin's Church in Canterbury, uh, fifth century church. It's where uh, when um, Augustine came from Rome, Ethelbert welcomed into Kent, 597. It's, it's the first building that they used. And the Roman bricks that they, it was built with are still there. And you can put your hand against them. You can stand where they stood and you can put your hand against them. It's not like a museum. It's a living place. You can touch these bricks and you are transported back so bad at maths, um, 1500 years, and you are connected in some way. I mean, that's just, that's mind blowing, it's fascinating. You know, these aren't just characters in history. These aren't people who came and did things. And oh, that's interesting, I've read that in a book. You're standing in the spot where they stood. So it's connection as well, it's connecting with the story. I mean, you talk about the importance of, of people in the book and, um, and they, how they interacted and worshipped in, in church buildings. Um, you also write the attitude of monarchs as been a key, if not the key determining factor in the development of Christianity. So I mean, that, that's a, a thread throughout the book as well, is it, the, the role of monarchs? Absolutely, and I mean, a key, uh, certainly until the Reformation and after the Reformation in some ways, is the relationship between the papacy and, uh, and the ruler. Um, so my, the Reformation was a really hard one to do in the book, because so basically there's a church per century. And that works relatively well. It just gets tricky in those centuries, the 15th, uh, 16th and 17th century, uh, because particularly the 16th century, because you've got a completely different reformation happening in Scotland. 
I mean, obviously coming from the changes in Europe, coming from Luther's Reformation, but coming at it in a very, very different way from what is going on in England. And we tend to conflate it in our mind because of Mary, Queen of Scots. She was, you know, she was a problem for the reformers in Scotland, but she was a problem for the reformers in England, Elizabeth, in a different way. Um, so how do you do that? You sort of need two churches if you're going to cover this properly. So what I did in the 15th century, which is frankly a slightly dull century in terms of things going on in the Church of, the Church of England, a, a, a kind of complacent century in many ways, is right at the very very end you have Henry VII building or commissioning the Henry VII chapel at the back of Westminster Abbey and it's all about the divine right of kings, extraordinary ceilings, fan vaulting, the things hanging down from them, all the tombs of the Reformation figures, I love the one of Elizabeth and Mary right next to each other with Elizabeth completely on show and poor old Mary I tucked underneath and of course, most poignantly, is the, um, the tomb of Mary, Queen of Scots, built by her son, which is the biggest of all of them in there, built by her son, James VI of Scotland, James I of England, who was only ever held by her as an infant. He never saw her in his adult lifetime. And Bill's, you know, if you ever doubted that boys and their mothers have a, 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 a kind of, there's some sort of bond between them, there it is. So all that history was in there. So I did that at the very end of the 15th century. And for the 16th century, uh, used uh, St. Giles's Cathedral in Edinburgh, where there is a statue of John Knox. Interestingly, there's a statue of John Knox in there, because what did John Knox hate? Statues. And so they've got a statue of him there. And, I, and, and so that leads you into the Scottish Reformation. Again, when you get to the 17th century, really hard century to find a church that works for it. Uh, because first of all, you have, you have James I, then you have the Civil War, then you have the Commonwealth, then you have the Restoration. What's going to cover it all? And there really isn't one, but Little Gidding sort of did it for me. So Anglican religious community there at the beginning, trying to infuse spirituality. Charles I went there after the Battle of Naseby. He knew the community there afterwards. Oliver Cromwell comes from just up the road in Huntingdon, because uh, Little Gidding is in the middle of all those flat Cambridgeshire fields. Um, doesn't do much for the Charles, the Charles II uh, restoration, I'm afraid. But, you know, it can't be perfect. History can be cajoled up to a point. But, but not. So it is telling the history of monarchs and monarchs come and you know, big changes were made by monarchs often. You know, if one of the questions to ask about Henry VIII's reformation is it wasn't really what people wanted. There wasn't, you know, mm. there wasn't a kind of huge popular demand for it. Certainly there was a popular demand, but not an overwhelming popular demand, which is why the Church of St. Melangeth, they kept their shrine, but they put it in the walls. So they were working round kings. People worked round kings. At my local church in Norfolk, at St. Mary's South Creek, um, we have amazing angels put up at the time of the Battle of Agincourt because of the angels meant to have helped Eng the English in their victory. Um, we know that in Suffolk and Norfolk, um, during the Commonwealth, the, the people stripping out popery were very, very zealous. Why are the angels still there? Because people wanted them. They didn't, I mean, partly because they're on the hammer beam ceiling, and if you start hacking them off the hammer beam ceiling, it might fall down. But people wanted them there. So it, it, it tells you both the, the high story and the low story, the popular story and the official story. Mm. And of course, I think it's in the 18th chapter on the 18th century, um, which, which um, talks a lot about Wesley and, and Methodism. So there's the, the nonconformist dissenting tradition is, is obviously a key part of, of this history. Absolutely. And, 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 and I mean, one of the uh, challenges in writing the book was kind of giving everyone fair voice, really. Because um, if you are going to choose 20 buildings, so the, ori the original idea, my lovely editor, Catherine Werner Hodder, originally said, when we, we started discussing this idea, she said, you, know, you, could, you could do six churches in England that tell the story. 
And I said, mm, it's a bit odd if you just tell the story of England because detail Wales as well. And Scotland has an impact on it. And I mean, and this came much clearer when I was writing the book, you know, there's Irish missionaries who came from Ireland in the sixth century of whom Columba was but one and brought it in and that remaining Irish, I want to say Irish rather than Celtic's a very misleading word, but that, that influence, which, you know, standard historical uh, texts tell you disappeared with the Synod of Whitby in 664, but it was always there, it was always a part of it. I wanted to, so I said, oh, let's, do, let's do all of these bits. And if we're going to do all of these bits, let's do, let's do 20 churches, um, uh, which was probably a bit overambitious in some ways, but actually 20 churches didn't seem enough. So in it, I did quite a lot of the book and the research with a map in front of me thinking I've got to be fair to the Scottish because obviously they, they do complain when we're not with these terrible English people, even though I'm a bit Irish, uh, don't give them their fair due. So out of 20, how many should be Scottish? Well, 10%, so two should be in Scotland, one in Wales, one and a half in Ireland. And in the end, I had such a long list of places. I ended up by adding some more at the end of each chapter saying you could look at these ones as well. So in portioning them out, it was... It was all sorts of things. And I suppose what I was also trying to do was, um, was, was give the different traditions their fair crack of the whip in a way. And it seemed to me that in the 18th century, I mean, clearly there had been dissenters beforehand and actually in the um, 14th century, uh, I go to Wycliffe's church in Lincolnshire, although Wycliffe spent very little time there. Um, I, I go there just because it, 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 Actually, the church contradicts what he what he was later famous for teaching, but it worked very well from that point of view. Um, so the descent tradition had been there for a long time, um, but I really felt it needed to, it needed to have its own church in in the run of twenty. So it is Hepton Store Methodist Chapel, uh, which is the oldest Methodist chapel in continual use in the whole world. Not just there's a couple of whole world ones in there. The twelfth century church is St Andrew's Greenstead in Essex, which is the oldest wooden church in the whole world, not just not just here, but the, that meth I love that Methodist chapel. Um, oddly, one of my best friends has ended up by going to live in Hepton Store. And so um, I went up there for the weekend and the church is looked after by two Margarets um, who've gone there all their life. And they show me around the, 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 the church. And um, I mean, this is very little used now. And, uh, but capturing, Capturing, I think, particularly interesting in terms of the history of the Church of England, how in the 18th century, particularly around the uh, Industrial Revolution, the Church of England, not always, but a lot of the time, was very slow to catch on to the changes. And, then, and Wesley, of course, completely got those, the outdoor preaching, the preaching up the Calder Valley where the canal was being built through to, to Rochdale and the um, uh, the mills and the factories on the valley floor at Hebden Bridge and the chapel up above. I mean, um, Wesley went to Hebden Stall 20 times before it was built, while it was being built and after it was being built. So, um, no, fantastic, so fantastic views, fantastic building, an octagonal. And I said to the two Margarets, why is it octagonal? And they said, well, the official reason is we built, we built octagonal churches originally, so they didn't look like churches. Because of course, Wesley always said that he was part of the Church of England and he was an add-on, he was an extra, he wasn't separate. And then they said, but when we were young women, we were told that it was octagonal so the devil couldn't hide in the corners, which I thought was a very nice, nice, nice idea. Yes. I'm also interested in, there's a lot of debates in the Church of England at the moment about the future of the parish system. Um, I just wondered what your research told you in the book about the, the, the resilience of the parish system through the centuries. 
Well, it's been around for a very long time, hasn't it? So one of the one of the threads that threads through the book is the development of the parish system um, from, you know, a Lords of the Manor and kind of feudal times um, in terms of parishes in, 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 um, in towns, guilds growing in towns, not wanting to be um, beholden to the local monastery, wanting their own church, chantry chapels, people um, wanting to, uh, you know, the great men of the town wanting to be remembered in, in their own towns. The, uh, as I say, the kind of guilds and the trades are all part of that. Um, and, you know, when you go to Wycliffe's church in Lincolnshire, um, that whole, the whole way the parish system didn't work very well then because these livings were handed out to people like, like him who was busily teaching at Balliol and didn't really have time to go. And so he would just, he would take all the money. He, you know, actually didn't have a, a vicarage came later there, but in some of them, lovely vicarage, use it for kind of like a country cottage and get some poor ill-educated. This all comes out in um, Piers uh, Plowman, doesn't it? Um, but it's, but you know, that, that, that putting in poorly trained substitutes and the idea of improving the quality of, of, um, of ministry in the parish system. So it is there throughout. And one of the things that I saw going around more recent parish churches, so my 19th century church, is St Elizabeth's in Reddish in Stockport, which was one of those great industrial, Victorian industrialists, God and empire, God and money, God and manufacturing, all going hand in hand. So the Church of England by that stage had got the gist of um, industrialization, and he built this fabulous, fabulous Victorian church. Um, he'd been inspired by St. Mark's in Venice, and um, he wanted these enormous marble columns to go down either side of the aisle. And he also wanted to cause a stir when they arrived. So he had them shipped into Manchester docks, taken round by canal to, uh, to Stockport, and then uh, pulled on carts by two elephants from Bellevue Zoo and brought and put in place in his church. So, you know, people would have lined the, 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 the streets as they were there. He built a church, he built a walk, working man's club, he built a school and he built cottages for his workers. And that was once a very vibrant pass, uh, 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 church. And a lot of those, that infrastructure, the school is there, the working man's club's there, the cottages are there, and they're not all kind of fashionably done up uh, by middle-class people moving in and thinking they're being a bit rustic. Um, but the church itself was virtually empty. And the really lovely man who showed me around, who's called Brian, was saying, you know, there's about 10 of us here trying to keep this place going. And there the, the clearly are issues. And certainly in those big industrial centres like Manchester, like Liverpool, there are so many Victorian churches. And one of the crises that we've had, if we're thinking about the buildings themselves, is how to maintain those buildings. It would seem to me that part of our national culture, part of our national heritage, part of what we, you know, that, that corner of the world that is always England, is, is a rural skyline with a spire on it. If we want that to carry on, we cannot keep asking congregations of five and six to look after medieval churches like my, my Norfolk Village one. You know, the state has to step in in some shape, form, and perhaps one day they will, because otherwise we will lose these things. In terms of congregations, it's a much harder one really, isn't it? Um, in terms of church building, the churches that are being built in the 21st century, the churches that can attract congregations, are often from evangelical groups, um, often evangelical groups outside the Church of England, and they tend to um, not really have much interest in what the building itself looks like. They tend to be sort of aircraft hangars on the outside of towns, and I would suggest by the end of the 21st century they probably won't be around anymore. Um, but we have somehow 
Well, I think if we want to keep the parish system going, it can't just be about a church. It's got to be about people being there. So those are much bigger questions and completely beyond the scope of the book. I suppose to turn that question on its head and say, people don't go to church very much anymore. People are more secular, more skeptical, more uh, seduced by science. So I don't mean seduced by science. Science is a wonderful thing. It, it discovered vaccines to protect us against COVID, but, but they tend to take the scientific rational argument and not give enough space just to think about what faith is trying to say. I think a lot of people now think, well, I can't go into a church because I don't believe in God. And, and particularly, I saw this with friends actually, because I do lots of church crawling, I do it on two legs, not four, and I'm not drunk when I do it, but I do, I love going around churches. Some really good friends of ours live in um, Westleton in Suffolk, and they live right next to the beautiful medieval church with a thatched roof on it. And we were sitting and I said, do you go there often? It's so beautiful having it next to your garden. They said, we've never been in there. And they are completely secular, have no belief at all. And we went in and I started as you can sense the way I talk, enthusing about the building, saying, oh, look, at, look at what goes on, you know, between the nave and the... And they're going, what's the nave and the chancel? People don't know what they are, so we've actually got to stop. We've got to say the big bit and the small bit at the back. We can't talk about ambulatories and rude screens. People don't know what they are. That puts people off. They also said, well, can we go in? You know, were we allowed to go? And you know, well, who, who do you think is going to stop you? I mean, most churches are empty and I want to get over to people. These churches are just there. They're this, this treasure house of things that tell you history, history of history of the community, history of political history, monarchical history. And they tell us about us. They tell us where we come from. You can go in. No one will challenge you. No one will charge you. And actually, they don't, often don't have those awful, I hate those signs in museums that tell you what to think when you're looking at it. You want to look at it and think, I'm going to think about it before I read the sign. It's all there. So in a way, I kind of want to think about the churches separate from the institution. I mean, a lot of people are very disillusioned by institutional Christianity or drifted away from it. Not, I think, not particularly through a lack of faith or a lack of interest in, in finding another way to look at the world than the secular view. I think a lot of people in their lives have moments that you might call glimpses of transcendence, but they, they, they don't explore, they don't know where to explore them. And they think they can't go into, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, still working churches in, the, in that sense, or churches that are still in, in operation, because they'll, they'll, they'll encounter all these obstacles, they'll be made to feel embarrassed or to give money or to convert. None of those things will happen. And I'd like people to see the buildings as part of their heritage and treasure them for that reason. So in a way to separate the buildings from the institution, but of course someone's got to pay for the buildings then. Yes, in, indeed. I mean, you also talk in the book about on, online worship during the pandemic, which, which seems to have been quite popular. Um, I mean, do you think that that could herald in the long term a kind of move away from worship in buildings um, and might that be a way to att attract people to the church I hated it I really couldn't wear it at all I couldn't work out couldn't work out what I was meant to do really I couldn't um sitting in front of the telly uh, church is about community it didn't feel like a community you'd walk in with your coffee cup and sit down and then they kind of should and I tried at one stage bringing kitchen table chairs in because I thought I had to sit up properly and then I sat on the sofa and that I just I just it didn't kind of connect in any way I love I mean I sort of love the idea about being to you know flip around from the Pope's chapel to my father-in-law's church in Weybridge and all of those things I mean I like that but um it didn't work for me but, but you're absolutely right it worked for a lot of people it brought people back whether that tells us 
that people weren't going to church because it's too much of an effort to get there, or whether it tells us that COVID was a terrifying time um, and that in terrifying times we returned to religion. So they became more curious again. And I certainly think the churches gave a really good account of themselves in that. So I would hope there would be some uh, knock-on effect in, 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 in people, perhaps not finding them, perhaps all those people who think odd things go on in churches and they won't feel comfortable there would have seen them online and thought, well, they all, they all look quite like me. I think I might go to that. Or they might not know the right words when they get there. Uh, they might have a sense of that. So it might play into that. And, you know, it, it is clearly it is clearly the way the world is going. I just think there is, there's that phrase, isn't there, about uh, we often use of places of pilgrimages or holy shrines and sites being thin places where the boundaries between the material world and the spiritual world sort of narrow somehow. And I think in general churches are those places. And one of the reasons why I like to go to a physical church is because there's something about the place. I mean, it can be very simple. It doesn't have to be ornately decorated. Uh, the church that I go to in Norfolk is very, very simple. And there's a power in that. There's a power of transcendence in that. But obviously going into an extraordinarily beautiful place um, uh, with, with an extraordinary history, there is both the history that you drink in. And it's the same thing that I said before, you're sitting in a bench where people have sat before you are part of a chain, we're part of a human chain. One of the things that the modern world does to us, uh, or we, we take from modernity, is that we, the individual, are very, very important. And yes, of course we are. Every human being is precious to God. We have human rights. We have laws that protect all of those things. Um, you know, we should never do unto others what we wouldn't done and do, have done to ourselves. You know, that human rights and Christianity go together. But on the other hand, this kind of me, 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 me culture and how important we all are and how important, you know, how, how clever we are now. And we use the word medieval as if it means stupid. And, you know, medieval people had extraordinary insights. I, um, I think one of the experiences of sitting in the church, whether you go in for a visit when you're on the way back from the pub on a Sunday afternoon or whether you go to service in the morning, it doesn't really matter. Either way, it has the same effect. You are aware that you are a tiny piece of sand in the tide of history being, being and I find that, um, I was going to say I find that necessary, but it makes me sound like I'm a monster ego and I need bringing down, which perhaps people listening to this will think, God, shut up. What does that man, what does that man know? Why is he on this? But I just think we, we need to be made to feel small a lot of the time before God. That's important. So I think a move away from using churches for what they're for would be really sad. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.